Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. The big surprise was that relationships make us happier, but not just that, that they keep us healthier. We said, wait, how could they make it less likely that you would get coronary artery disease or get type 2 diabetes? And then other studies began to find the same thing. Hi, my name is Mark Groves, and I'm obsessed with understanding human behavior and why we do what we do. In this podcast, I interview the world's most brilliant minds and hearts, where I get to explore, alongside you, every subject you can imagine relating to our human experience and how we relate. It is my deepest intention that we all learn how to create the life and love that we've always dreamt of. Now, before we get rolling, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any episodes. And one ask that I have, and an amazing way that you can help support the podcast, is by wherever you listen to it, giving it a five-star review and a written review. With all that said, let's dive in and transform our lives. Welcome to another episode of the Mark Rose Podcast. Today, I have Dr. Robert Waldinger, who is a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, the director of the Center for Psychodynamic Therapy and Research at Massachusetts General Hospital, and the director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development. And you're also a Zen priest. When I read your bio, I was like, oh, this guy's laying it down. He's got every aspect of this. <laughs> also, you have the TED Talk about the Harvard study that was called What Makes a Good Life. And that has been viewed more than 40, I think it's now even 44 million times. Yeah, And is so. one of the 10 most watched TED Talks. Well, I can say that I am one of those 44 million, and I probably watched <laughs> it more than once. And you're also the author of The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Study on Happiness. So welcome to the show. So excited to have you here. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. When did that talk come out? Like 16 years ago? Something like that? 2015. So seven years ago. Oh, I added a lot of time to that. I watched it and I remember being very touched by it. It really validated a lot of things I think we probably in our soul know or like our heart understand. Can you tell us a little more about the study and what you were looking at? Sure. So as far as we know, it's the longest study of adult life that's ever been done. It's followed the same families starting in 1938, and we're still collecting data on them. Started with two groups, a group of Harvard College undergrads 
19 years old, um, wow. and a group of inner city boys from Boston's poorest and most troubled families. The Harvard grads were meant to be a study of fine, upstanding young men and normal <laughs> yeah. young adult development. So of course you study all white guys from Harvard, right? But, yeah. You know. But the inner city boys were part of a study of juvenile delinquency. And their question was, why is it that some kids who are born into such difficult circumstances manage to stay on good paths? They don't mm. get into trouble. They build good lives. And so both of them were studies of thriving, which was unique. Mm-hmm. When, when most, most research is done on what goes wrong, understandably, this was a study of what goes right. So were they actually intending when they started both of those separately? Were they intending to run them parallel and compare? Not at all. In fact, wow. they didn't even know about each other. And then my predecessor, George Valiant, who was the third director of the study, put them together and said, these would be wonderful contrasting groups. And then what I did when I came on is we brought in all the wives because we said, we want to have women here. And then we reached out to the children, more than half of whom are women. So now we have a really good gender balance in the study too. That's incredible. Like what an opportunity to be be able to see all of life's events, not just from a cultural global perspective and the impact those have, but also just the life events that they have within their own lives. Yeah. Oh, that's the thing. Cause you get to, you get to track somebody's level of happiness through the decades. You get to track, like we tracked levels of marital satisfaction over five decades. And that was just eye opening because we saw it go up and down. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So it, what was, or what has been some of the maybe most surprising or most powerful learnings that you've had? The big surprise was that relationships make us happier, but not just that, that they keep us healthier and they help us live longer. At first, we didn't even believe it when we got the data on that. We said, wait, how could relationships get into your body, how could they make it less likely that you would get coronary artery disease or get type 2 diabetes? And then other studies began to find the same thing. And now it's quite well established and everybody believes it because there's so much scientific evidence for the health promoting benefits of relationships. So you were saying that our relationships impact whether we have cardiovascular disease or was that also seen with things like Alzheimer's or dementia? And it was. Like wow. It was. What, they, what they've shown now is that people who are more socially isolated, people who are lonely, have cognitive decline sooner. They are more prone to get Alzheimer's sooner. And that, that this, again, has been repeated in mm-hmm. many other studies. Wow. And I'm curious, when you went to look back at relationships, was it predictive based on whether they were in romantic relationships or, you know, were they people that had, like, they were at the party all the time or like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, the life of the party? Yeah. Or, you know, what were sort of the frameworks around relating? Yeah. Well, that's, those are great questions. So one is, do you need to be married or do you need to be in an, an intimate relationship? And the answer is no. That many of our people were, but what we know from our study and lots of studies is that those benefits of good relationships can come from, you know, all kinds of 
relationships, other family members, friends, workmates, all of them contribute to our well-being. So don't have to have a partner. And then there was another part to your to your question. It was uh, yeah. Do you have to be the life of the party? Yeah. Right? Do you yeah. have to be the life of the party? No, you don't. That's that, good news for my yeah. partner. She'll be like, oh, okay, good. <laughs> no, nothing wrong with being a kind of shy person, a person who likes more alone time, and because we're all on a spectrum temperamentally, from being shy to being extroverted, and shy people get their energy and their refueling from more alone time. And extroverts get their energy from the parties, right? right? And the gatherings. Neither one is healthier than the other. What we believe is that even the introverts need one or two relationships that they really feel solid about. So I'll give you an example. We asked some of our original participants, who could you call in the middle of the night if you were sick or scared? list everybody. And Mm -hmm. and some of our participants could list several people. Some of our participants couldn't list anybody, including some of those people were married and they couldn't list anybody. So what we believe is that no matter how shy you are or how extroverted you are, you want at least one or two people in your life who you really feel have your back and that would be there if you were in trouble. Beyond that, there's no set number. There's no magic number of friends at all. So people don't have to try to get more friends and followers on Instagram to no. raise their level oh, of well-being. No. That probably imp- the pursuit of that probably impacts your, your long-term well-being. It probably does. <laughs> I'm curious, were there specifics about the relationship? Like you said, one, they have your back. Was that sort of the main characteristic of the relationships? Were there other things that you that you saw that were just made for a rich life and rich health? Absolutely. So what we think is that you need one or two relationships that Mm -hmm. that are that kind of go-to person, but then you need lots of other kinds of relationships. So we need people who we have fun with. Yeah. You know, maybe we never confide in them or rely on them in a crisis, but they are the people we party with. We need people we can play sports with or take walks with. We need the people at work who, you know, help us out with projects. I have a neighbor. He always has the right tool for whatever needs to be fixed. And I am <laughs> clueless about that stuff. So he's the, he's the guy I go to when I need the tools. We rely on each other for all kinds of things. And it's important to have those people in our lives. What did you notice in terms of impacts of things like divorce, marriage, like all those types of big life events? And and maybe, yeah, more specifically, the ones that feel quite traumatic, like, you know, what happens if someone does have something like that? Are they kind of screwed? No, they're not screwed. First of all, many, many people divorce. Many, many people yeah. have, have breakups of important relationships. And what we know is that it's totally possible to recover, to move on from those, to find new relationships that really provide us with those benefits we're talking about. And one of the things we talk about in the book is how important it is to try to work out difficulties in relationships if they can be worked out. So when I talk about good relationships, I don't mean they have to be kumbaya all the time. They don't have to be like, you know, warm and fuzzy all the time. In fact, most relationships have disagreements, have conflicts, right? And it's not about whether you argue. The 
The trick is how do you work out the arguments? Are you able to work out disagreements and difficulties so that each person comes away feeling okay? Nobody feels like they've lost. And often when we can work out those disagreements, the relationships get stronger. But, you know, to your question, many times you can't work it out. We need to step away from those relationships and find new ones. And that's totally possible. That doesn't mean you're out of luck. I feel so honored to have been able to partner with Cured Nutrition for the podcast. I love their products. And one of my favorite products from them is their Cured Serenity Gummies. I mean, I love it. It's formulated with their trinity of ingredients, a blend of full-spectrum cannabinoids, functional mushrooms, and adaptogens. They left out the artificial flavors, the sugars and dyes that we're just so used to being in gummies. And they replace them with the ingredients that actually live up to the declaration that they have a clean label. This product I tend to take later in the day, and I actually find that it really helps with sleep. Like I find that I get much calmer, I feel more relaxed. They're so good. If the Serenity gummies sound like something you want to try, Cured has extended an exclusive offer to you, my listeners. You can grab the Serenity gummies for 20% off by visiting www.curednutrition.com slash create the love and use the coupon create the love at checkout. That's C-U-R-E-D nutrition.com slash create the love and make sure you use the coupon code create the love at checkout to save 20% off all their products. I guess that leads so perfectly to another question I have, which is it sounds like social networks, community, family, that makes sense that that all would really enrich us, make us feel great. What is the cost of being in relationships that are high conflict? Can you sparse that info in the study? Is that available? We can. And some other researchers have looked at that. So they've looked at, is it worse for you to stay in a high conflict marriage or to leave it? Yeah. And some of the data suggests that it's worse to stay in really acrimonious, nasty relationships, that it really is, that it breaks down our health and certainly our happiness. But that if things can be worked out, it's often better to stay because you've invested so much already. So it varies a lot. Each person's relationship is different. So there's no formula for this, yeah. you know, for the people who are listening. But we've all had breakups in our lives. Almost, I, I bet everybody listening to you has had a breakup <laughs> and we know how painful it is. And we've probably also worked out difficulties with some relationships and feel good about that. And so the trick is to figure out what's what's possible in this relationship and do I have to step away or can I work this out? Do you find that there was, like when you think about why relationships have such a significant impact on our long-term health and well-being? Yeah. We've been spending the last 10 years studying just what you're talking about. The best hypothesis we have and other researchers have been studying this too, is the idea that relationships help us manage stress. Yeah. We, you know, stress happens all day long, right? We have stressful things happen. You know, and for example, if I have something stressful happen, I can feel myself get upset. I can feel my body rev up, my heart rate revs up. You know, I might start to sweat. That's my body going into fight or flight response. And that's okay. That's normal. We want the body to do that. But then when the stress is removed, we want the body to go back to equilibrium, to baseline. 
And if I come home from an upsetting day and I can talk to my partner or I can call somebody on the phone and they're a good listener, I can literally feel my body calm down. Mm -hmm. And we think that's how relationships work. But if you don't have anybody like that, then we think that those people, the lonely people, the isolated people, they end up staying in a kind of chronic fight or flight mode from the normal stressors that come along. And that what that means is higher levels of circulating stress hormones. That means higher levels of inflammation throughout the body. And that those break down body systems gradually. And that's how we think it works. Do you look at, now that you're looking at multiple generations, do you look at sort of the patterns that you, you're talking about, the maybe level of security in the relationship? And this audience would be really familiar with attachment theory. So like, yeah. do you look at attachment and quantify it or, or and then follow? We do. Oh my gosh. We do. In fact- This is the juiciest database I've ever heard of. We love this database. I'm just, I feel so privileged to, to work on this. It's just amazing. We did a study for the first time of attachment, security of attachment in older couples. So people in their late 70s, early 80s, we did these long interviews with them that helped us to, and and then we crunched numbers on the basis of those interviews to help us quantify, okay, how securely connected is each of these people to their partner? And what we found was, first of all, links with childhood, that the Mm. people who had warmer relationships with their parents as kids, 60 years later, had warmer, more secure attachment to their partner. Mm. And then we found that the people who were more securely attached to their partners in late life had cognitive health that remained strong longer, had physical health that remained strong, and certainly were happier. Wow! So attachment is a huge driver, even late in life. Yeah, I was thinking because of that, I mean, I guess ultimately what we're talking about is attunement. You know, and if we have great attunement with parents and they're like monitoring our needs, which of course not everybody gets, right. you know, and, and that's the sad reality. And I think that's circum- the circumstances of our society now too, two parents working, you know, did you see dramatic changes? Like if a kid came from a, a family that maybe didn't have that great attachment or security or warmth with their parents that as they aged, they created that in their later life. Yes, we did. Uh, and and that's actually one of the most heartening things. You know, we we have these real life stories in the book. They're disguised to protect the privacy of the people, but they're real stories. And some of those stories are about people who had traumatic childhoods, difficult relationships with parents and siblings, and then found a partner who was stable, reliable, warm, found friends. Similarly, what we find is that it's possible that these expectations you get as a kid of the world isn't safe, people can't be trusted, that those expectations can gradually shift to more positive expectations. If you find people in your life who show you what's possible in a good relationship, that it really happens. So they get to learn a new template, which is... yeah. Yeah, I think for people listening, because, you know, of course, as I said, not everyone is blessed to have that and to know that we can change and get the life that that you're talking about. Is there anything other than relationships that you saw that 
really was indicative of health in later life? Yes. Well, first of all, taking care of your health really makes a difference. Yeah. So let's just name that. I mean, it's, I guess it's obvious, but it's so, the effects are so powerful of, you know, regular exercise, eating well, not abusing alcohol or drugs, not smoking, uh, getting health care, all of that really matters. So that's the non surprising story from our study. But in addition, what we find and other studies find is that if you have a sense of meaning and purpose in your life from anything, it really makes a difference that that if you have that feeling of, this is why I get up in the morning, that that makes a difference in how not just how you feel about your life, but even your health. And in some studies, your longevity. And that could be anything. It doesn't have to be at your work. It could be raising kids. It could be being a friend. It could be being a mentor. So many things can serve that purpose of finding purpose, but it really helps to find it somewhere in your life. Did you notice any crossover of like if someone's relationships when they were younger were maybe more challenging, did they have a harder time actually creating those other things that contribute to well-being? They do. They do, because the problem is that when you develop expectations that people aren't trustworthy and the world isn't reliable, mm -hmm. it's very hard to be open enough and vulnerable even a little bit with other people to let them in. So it's a it's a really delicate balance trying to, you know, keep yourself safe, but take enough of a risk to open yourself up to new kinds of experiences in adulthood. That's why childhood trauma is so crushing and so difficult because it sets us up in that way. Is there anything that we can personally do? Like maybe we're, you know, someone's listening and they're like, all right, I think I got a couple people I can call, but I'm really interested in what Bob's saying and I, I really want to cultivate a good life. What can we personally do to really have a giant impact on this? We've been talking in the book about what we're calling social fitness, and it's really well, just like an analogy to physical fitness, right? The idea being that, you know, if I work out today, I don't come home and say, good, I'm done. I don't ever have to do that again, right? Like we think of it as a practice and what we think people can do and, you know, could really do more of is see tending to your relationships as a practice, as an ongoing practice. Now, this doesn't have to be a huge endeavor. Tiny things can make this work every day. You could do this every day, at least every week. So what do I mean? I mean, after they're through listening to us right now, listening to this conversation, think about somebody you miss, somebody you haven't seen in a while or connected with in a while, and you'd like to reach out to just send them a text, send them an email, call them on the phone and just say, I just wanted to say, hi, I've been thinking of you. You will be amazed at what you get back. Not mm. every time, but much of the time, people will be thrilled. People will text me back and say, oh my gosh, I'm so glad to hear from you. Or can we have dinner next week? One friend said, I just had surgery and it's so great to hear from you. You know, so all these things yeah. start to happen, ripple effects. We can do tiny actions. If you committed yourself to doing something like this every day, you would really strengthen your connections with people. What about any specific skills? 
Because I, I definitely agree with cultivating gratitude and appreciation with your relationships. Is there any specific skills that you saw or, or continue to see in terms of impact? Uh, I'm guessing like conflict management, things like that. Yeah, conflict management. So along those lines, curiosity. So let's say somebody does something that offends you. Your brain always starts filling in for what they did. Like, why did they do that? Oh, I bet they did it for this reason, right? When you may not know. So curiosity can be so helpful just to stop and say, okay, what might be going on for this person that they did this thing that I don't like? And certainly with relationships that we feel are kind of old and we take for granted, Mm -hmm. you know, like... I've been married to the same person for 36 years, right? (laughs) And so, you know, how many thousands of meals have we eaten together? So (laughs) one of the exercises in the book and that I use myself is from my Zen teacher who said to me, here, bring this to your meditation and you can bring it to a dinner with your spouse or your friend. The question you ask yourself is, what's here that I've never noticed before? Oh, wow. That's powerful. Yeah. So you're sitting with somebody you feel like you know, like the back of your hand and you say, okay, I'm going to find something. My job is to find something I've never noticed. That's beautiful. People love it when you're curious about them. They love it when you notice something new about them because they feel seen and we all want to feel seen. That level of curiosity too, I would imagine when I think about the world today and, and just our collective inability to handle difference. And just how much curiosity leads to that, just to be able to yeah. uh, see the other person as an opportunity to learn. You know, somebody told me, I, this was a great tip. They said, you know, they said, look, when you talk to somebody who's into conspiracy theories, don't try to convince anybody of anything. Just add, be curious. Like, <laughs> well, how does that satellite in outer space that's controlling us, how does it actually work? What does it do? You know, <laughs> just be curious. Right. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Then at least you continue to keep a bridge open. I think the I think of the principles of improv. You know, in improv, yeah. you're, you're supposed to always say yes and, you know, because you don't want to yeah. leave your improv partner on the stage with nothing to say. And I think that's very true of relationship too. Absolutely, absolutely. That you go with it, you know, just like improv. My son does improv and he was in an improv troupe in high school. And I learned that that rule, say yes to improv. And, and, you know, a lot of like, you know, if you think about it, what you and I are doing right now is a lot of saying yes to each other. You introduce something and I want to go with it. And similarly, what I say makes you go with it. And that makes for much more kind of enlivening conversations. It does. You know, I am curious with the study, are you guys continuing to dive sort of deeper and deeper in? I think you said it's ongoing still. So it doesn't have an end date. In fact, just an hour ago, I had a meeting with my research staff about the data we're currently collecting. And a couple of the things we're focusing on now, this is with our children, the second generation, is their social media use. We're focusing on what their experience has been like during the pandemic. We're trying to get information about kind of current big, big issues that we can study in a rigorous way with research. And do you stratify that data by 
so many different, I'm guessing technology would help that too, but by so many different nuances of like their political affiliation, the amount of media they consume. And not that I want every, anything to be partisan, but just I think it's interesting how our identities get formed and how that actually groups with specific behaviors and, and character traits. You know, we ask so many different kinds of questions. Like we don't even know some of the questions that were asked because it's been over 85 years. But one thing my predecessors asked every four years is, who did you vote for for president? <laughs> so we know. Yeah. <laughs> and it's amazing. Like, so we don't focus on politics, but we do focus on orientation. Yeah. Um, so we've asked about big political movements and what people feel about them and how it impacts their sense of well-being in the world. Do you do any interventions in the study, like teaching secure attachment or how to, let's say, do um, different dialogue types from handling conflict well, and then keeping a control group? We don't do interventions. We are an observational study. Now, that said, we're not hands-off. So what we do is if somebody comes to us, and many people have, and said, you know, I need a doctor or I need a therapist, we help them find one. And that's unusual. Most studies, you know, rigorous scientific studies usually try to be absolutely hands-off, you know, observing from a distance so we don't influence. But one of the secrets to our study lasting, because over 85 years, we've had less than 20% dropout rate. That's and that's wild. incredible. That is wild, especially that it's been handed down. Like, exactly. hey, you inherited this study too, by the way. Exactly. I inherited, you know, it was handed down three times. But what we do is we are not hands-off. We send people birthday cards. We send people thank you notes when they return a questionnaire. And, you know, if they come to us asking for help, we do our best to provide the help. So that's a, a long answer to your very good question of do we, do we do interventions? We don't do treatment interventions, but we help where we can. Because what we want people to feel is part of a community because they're giving a gift to science that nobody else can give now because these families aren't replaceable. Right. And so we really want them to know how much we appreciate that gift that they're giving us. Do you think that level of care and community that they get from the study then is actually a model of the relationships that impact their health? And have you seen that in, let's say, the baseline of how people started versus how they are now just through the study? Well, we asked people, how has being in the study affected you? Mm -hmm. And some people said, hasn't affected me at all. And <laughs> some people have said, your questions are a nuisance. <laughs> but <laughs> But many of our people said this made a huge difference in my life because I knew I was going to regularly be asked to reflect on my life, where it's uh -huh. been, where it's going. And so we know that it has had an impact on people's lives, that just the fact that we observe them has an impact on how their lives go. You had a really powerful question at the beginning of the book. If you had to make one life choice right now to set yourself on the path to future health and happiness, what would it be? I found this a powerful point of inquiry because much like you said, being in the study sort of forced or invited people to pause and consider their lives. I think this question really does that. You know, we don't often pause and consider. We just kind of go with the momentum of what our choices have been and maybe the influence that we have from our families and culture. So that question in the study, did you ask people that or is that a reflection from it? We asked people what they value the most 
And actually, what we asked them when they got to late life was, Mm -hmm. looking back on your life, what are you proudest of and what do you regret the most? And that sort of gets at what you're talking about. People said they were proudest, almost to a person, of their relationships. Like nobody said, I made a fortune Mm -hmm. or I became a CEO or I won this award. Nobody said that. And some of them had done those things. They said, you know, I was a good parent. I was a good partner. I was a good boss. I, I was a good mentor. I made a difference at my church, whatever. It was all about people. And the things they regretted, again, so commonly were, I wish I had spent more time with the people I cared about mm. and I hadn't spent so much time at work. And the other thing, and actually this was women saying this more often than men, I wish I hadn't worried so much about what people thought. Mm. How has being part of this study, getting to observe it, getting to help, I guess, shape the inquiry of it, how has that affected your life and and your work too? Oh, it's really affected it. I'm a professor and a doctor, so I could work nonstop. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's just probably like, true, eh? oh, God. And I always have homework, right? And once my kids were grown and launched, I didn't have them running in and saying, Dad, come on, we got to do this, or you got to take me here, right? Which was actually a wonderful thing. Once they left, I realized I could just work nonstop if I let myself. And this research has made me do the thing that I was talking about a little while ago, where I now reach out to my friends, uh, you know, and say, Hey, do you want to go for coffee? Do you want to take a walk? I haven't seen you in a while. And so I have a dinner with a friend tomorrow night who I haven't seen in a while. And I have a walk scheduled on Saturday. Oh, that's and, great. you know, that's, that's what I do now. And it's very intentional. And I think that's the point that we hope we can make in the book. How could we be intentional, you know, day in and day out about just making sure we keep our connections vibrant? And there are small ways that we can keep doing that. Your work as a Zen priest really informed this too, or has it been oh, yeah. informed by it? I'm curious, Absolutely like, both. even how you got into that too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I got into Zen by accident. So I'd always been interested in Buddhism. I thought Buddhist philosophy was so helpful to me. Ideas about the impermanence of everything, about the interconnectedness of all of us and everything. Those were so helpful to me. And then by accident, my son had a coming of age ceremony. His friend had one at a Unitarian church five minutes from my house. So I walked in and turned out one of the parents there said, you know, that minister is also a Zen master. So I went and met with him and thought he was wonderful and started studying with him and the rest is history. And so your question about how has it influenced my work and my life, it's been an enormous influence. I think of Zen practice as another way of understanding what it means to be alive, you know, and what it means to be human. So research is one way. I do psychotherapy. That's my clinical specialty as a psychiatrist. And that's another way, you know, taking a deep dive with people about their own particular experiences. And then there's Zen. And Zen is, you know, Zen is sitting down on a meditation cushion every day and 
noticing what what is it like to be breathing today? What is it like to have knee pain today? <laughs> Walking in my neighborhood and and seeing a tree and like looking at it like as though for the first time. Mm. Zen practice asks us to bring fresh eyes to our experience when we can. And that's what I've found so incredibly valuable. Speaking of spirituality, I actually, yeah, I'm, I'm curious, did you notice a difference in the people with their relationship to maybe a religion or just a belief structure versus atheism? And I, not that I want to parse those out and, and pick mm. on anything, but I'm just curious because I feel like Jonathan Haidt's line of everybody has a God-sized hole in them. I feel like that's very true in that we just we yearn to be connected to something. So I'm wondering if you saw something, uh, if there was a correlation in outcomes or well-being. We actually did that analysis a while back. We looked at the people who said they had a religious observance or a spiritual practice of some kind, and we compared them with the people who did not. And there was no difference in their levels of happiness. Hmm. What we did find was that the people who found religion, spirituality helpful, found that it was a great comfort, particularly in difficult times. So we, the people who did turn to religion or spirituality found it very useful. But there were people who, for whom that wasn't, that wasn't for them. But, you know, to Jonathan Haidt's comment, many people had other things. They weren't gods, if you will, but they were things that they cared about. What we found was that most of the happy and healthy people in our study found things beyond the small self to care about. Mm. Con- people or things they wanted to have live in the world because they were here and because they made some effort. So it was about caring for others, caring for the world. That's not a religion. It doesn't have to be, but it can have a spiritual component to it. It certainly has that component of meaning and purpose. Yeah, they might not even know that it has a spiritual component, like it would be labeled as such. I totally agree with you. Contribution, which makes you feel part of something greater, relationships, community, family, you know, all of that. Just It's like in the work in, let's say, structures like AA, you know, one of the aspects of AA is to also mentor someone, which allows you to become part of something and see that you have gifts and you have things to teach which generates self-worth, which is so powerful. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and to your point about not even knowing, I didn't know that I had a spiritual practice when I started practicing Zen. And my teachers started referring to it as a spiritual practice. I said, wait, I'm not, I don't have a spiritual practice. And of course I do. And now I'm a Zen priest, right? And I, <laughs> and I teach Zen, but it took a while for me to recognize, oh my gosh, of course, because a spiritual practice isn't necessarily about the existence of a God. It's about concern with those big questions about what it means to be a human being in the world. And Zen is certainly concerned with that. And lots of other practices and traditions are concerned with that too. Do you look at habits and rituals of the participants in terms of you know, beyond exercise and things like that. We talked about curiosity earlier for other. What about curiosity for self or like practices of self-inquiry like meditation? Some people had those practices. 
our original generation was the World War II generation, where it wasn't as common in this country. Mm-hmm. You know, now meditative practices, yoga, other kinds of spirituality are more common. You know, there are spiritual meditative traditions in every major religion, always have been. Yeah. You know, Catholicism, Judaism, all kinds, you know. So what we find now in our next generation, most of whom are baby boomers, is that more of them have those kinds of practices because it's become better understood. It it feels less alien, I think, to those of us in the United States than it used to feel. Have you seen a general rise in well-being as you move through or has it stayed relatively steady? Well, we know that well-being in the US and around the world is going down. Yeah, and that's sense. one of we are we've been in a crisis in this regard for many years not just with the pandemic. Yeah. What we find is that happiness waxes and wanes as people go through life. So actually people are happiest in a lot of ways in their 20s but also in their 60s and 70s and 80s. That people get happier as they get older. Some of the least happy times are our most stressful times which are in midlife. Which makes sense, right? Yeah, it does. Because some of the, you know, it's like the perfect storm of career pressure, often family pressure, sometimes taking care of aging parents. There are a lot of things that come together in midlife that make it hard to just chill and, and smell the roses. And then it gets better as we get older. Do the participants in the study, as they're in it, do they get the results? Like, I guess they get to watch your TED talk or they get to, but do they get specific (laughs) updates on, and your book, which I'm sure they're looking forward to, but do they get specific updates? They do. We give them, we send newsletters. We just sent one out in the fall telling them what we're up to with pictures of our research staff. And if anybody's had a baby, we put the baby in there. We send little maps of where's everybody living now and, and like who's retired and who's not, not, not who we don't, we don't give people each other's names because we protect their confidentiality, but we say, you know, 60% of you are retired now, and here's what you're doing in retirement. Oh, that that's kind of cool. Thing. And so we try to remind them that this really is a community, which we love doing. What are you excited about with the study moving forward and, and just what's informing your work? I'm excited about other researchers coming and using our data. Because other researchers think of questions that we have never thought of. So I'll give you an example. Right now, we're collaborating with researchers at the Boston Veterans Administration and at Northwestern University on a study of, because they have data too on some people, they knew where they grew up in the city of Boston, and they they knew which homes they grew up in, which apartment buildings. The reason why that's important is they know whether there was lead in the pipes that put water into their homes. They knew how close they lived to these things called lead smelters that used to melt down scrap metal and put lead into the air. So what they do is we can know how much people were exposed to lead as kids in the 1930s and 40s. And then we have tracked their whole lives. So we can see what are the consequences of being exposed to a toxin as your life plays out. So that's a kind of collaboration that we never dreamed up. Somebody else dreamed it up and came to us and said, would you like to collaborate with us? That's what we're hoping for in the future. We would love for other researchers to come to us 
and say, hey, how about this idea? Well, I mean, that sounds really exciting. I can't wait to see all the questions that get answered just through. There's so many points of inquiry that you can do in a database like that. Crossovers, you know, just so many. I mean, the my nerd brain is just firing in every possible <laughs> way. Um, I'm a I'm a nerd too. That's why I do this. <laughs> oh God! I just think of all the data and I just get excited. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, come on down. <laughs> I'm gonna come on. Yeah, can I just get a direct portal and access Absolutely. the search engine? Um, Absolutely. Thanks so much for coming on. I I didn't say at the beginning, but I did before we hit record, which is this feels like a real coming back around for me because I do remember watching your talk and it really inspiring my work and it really validated a lot of what I felt to be able to interview you today just feels like such an honor and and the work you're doing just it keeps speaking the importance of relationship to people and that they can change and if they do change it has a significant impact on their health and it's important and they're important so thank you for the work that you do well and thank you for your work cuz you're bringing this to people in a big way and it really matters so I want to appreciate what you do here. Uh, With gratitude. And I'm curious, where can people find all the things? Like where can they find more of you? Where can they find your book? Which I'm guessing is, and we'll link everything out in the show notes. Sure. So the book has a website, thegoodlifebook.com. Actually, I have Dharma Talks on Insight Timer. So if you ever use that app, you can go to Insight Timer and I've got Dharma Talks there. You know, if you want to give expression to your nerdy side, you can go to our study website and download some of our papers. It's adultdevelopmentstudy.org. Adult development study is all one word and then .org. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you and uh, have a beautiful day. You too. Thank you so much. 